Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. In this episode, I'm very excited to bring the conversation I had with Christian Run. Christian is the CEO and co-founder of Normative. Uh, much of his background is in mathematics, philosophy, computer science, artificial intelligence. Uh, previously, he was working at University of Oxford's Future uh, Humanity Institute, looking at global catastrophic risks uh, with Nick Bostrom. And uh, then he went on to uh, co-found Normative, uh, which is doing amazing work, specifically with uh, carbon accounting with uh, companies and dealing with uh, carbon emissions for, uh, re- you know, trying to reduce the impact of that to try and show what that is and to really tackle climate change. Uh, so we start the conversation by talking about his work with Future for Humanity and how he got to normative. We talk a little bit of the history behind that. Talk about the landscape currently of climate change and what's going on. We then talk about normative and what they do. We talk about net zero versus carbon neutral. Uh, what are the differences there and, and how that's actually important to know the differences. We talk about carbon offsets. We talk about carbon accounting and tenure accounting. And this is the big thing that Normative, he, he and, and the folks at Normative are doing is carbon accounting. We talk about scopes one, two, and three. We talk about companies um, that are interacting with uh, kind of rules from different countries or global rules or standards uh, that are set to try and be um, going towards net zero. We talk about cap and trade a little bit, how effective that has or hasn't been. We talk about greenwashing, both voluntarily greenwashing and and involuntary greenwashing and how that works. And then we talk about the impact of AI on carbon accounting. Um, This was a really important conversation. I have uh, said many times on the podcast that I think a lot of people like to do movements and activism and, and hashtag stuff and stuff on social media about climate change. And, and I, you know, I think that has its place. I think that there's a, a place for that, but more so now than ever. I mean, we've, we've, we've been creating awareness with climate change activism for 25 years. We, we, we know what's going on. We know <laughs> We've got shows about it and movies about it and documentaries about it. And we got protests and marches and, um, you know, there's even capitalism got involved, making money off of the awareness. We've, we know that it's a problem. We know humans are part of the problem. Okay. So what do we do about it? And one of the things, um, that I appreciate about Christian is that it's a very pragmatic way of getting at incentives and trying to say, well, here's what we're doing. Here's what we're trying to do. Here's how we're trying to, to make sure people are getting accurate data uh, about how much, they're em- how much carbon they're emitting. And how do we reduce that? How do people reduce that? This is just a, this is just a, a very pragmatic way of doing this. And it's a, it's a kind of a rolling up your sleeves kind of thing of trying to tackle climate change. And so I think we need to hear more about this stuff. Uh, we need to know more about it, know how we can be involved as, from, as a consumer, from just as an individual citizen. Uh, this is where the work is. And, and, and I firmly believe what, what he's doing over there at Normative. I think they're doing great work. I think if people want to get involved, um, you know, I, I know that they have many ways that people can get involved. So uh, the, uh, the website over there is normative.io. Doing great stuff. You can reach out. I'm really doing really, really good stuff there.
Um, as always, you can uh, listen to this conversation, all other conversations at convergentdialogues.substack.com. So get over there, subscribe, follow, like, contribute. You can uh, obviously please share with your friends uh, that people would like the podcast. Uh, it always helps. I'm also on YouTube as well. And uh, now I bring you Christian Ronald. I'm here with Christian Ron. Uh, Christian, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to speaking with you today. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm excited about the conversation. Oh, yes, me as well. So I've uh, been looking into a lot of your research and a lot of the things that you've you've been doing and, and you're continuing to do. It's, uh, it's absolutely fantastic. So why don't you, uh, before we get into many of the topics we have, just tell listeners just a little bit about your um, professional and maybe academic uh, background, if it is there, and if you can talk about what the work that you're mostly doing now and, and what are you most uh, kind of putting out into the world? Good question. So when people ask me what I do, I usually tell people that I do the thing that bore people the most and frighten people the most. <laughs> uh, so that is... Uh, carbon emissions accounting. So what I'm doing right now, my primary job is that I run a software company that do, does carbon emissions accounting. And accounting is obviously the boring bit and climate change and carbon is the scary <laughs> bit. Uh, so if, if, uh, if you want the intense sort of cognitive dissonance and being frightened and, and, and bored at the same time, uh, speaking to me <laughs> is the, the right thing to do. Uh, but uh, jokes aside, so, so I, I run that business, but my background originally is in philosophy and, and mathematics. Uh, and I wrote my thesis on artificial intelligence. Um, and throughout my life, um, what I've cared about the most and what has been sort of the red thread uh, is to try and have as positive impact, as much positive impact as possible, and, and sort of defining that as uh, creating the maximum amount of, of, of flourishing and well-being for, for sentient beings. Uh, so it doesn't have to be humans, it can be animals, but also caring about uh, the long-term future. Uh, people or animals that have not yet been born and, and don't have uh, sort of a fundamental democratic vote in, with regards to what we do that might affect them later on. Um, so that has been uh, the guiding star of, of uh, ev everything that I've uh, done throughout my career from like a really early age, uh, asking myself, uh, hard uh, philosophical uh, questions. Uh, yeah, I think that's the. Sum I, I of can it, more or less. I can hear a, a lot of uh, Derek Parfit in there, future persons, things like that. You know, he was very concerned uh, about about that. So it's uh, yeah, it's, it's for sure. Uh, I had the opportunity of of, of meeting him oh, once very nice. when I uh, lived in in Oxford. Uh, unfortunately, he he passed away. Uh, I think a few years ago. Uh, but his uh, philosophy on, on population ethics and personal identity over time and a bunch of other important questions have, have had a profound impact. On yeah, that. yeah, he was, he was 
who's quite an interesting person. Uh, David Emmons just had a, a book come out on him that was fantastic. And when we were talking about it, he was talking all about his philosophy, but also him as a person. And he's, he's quite interesting, quite fascinating, and you know, kind of gone too soon in some ways. Mm. So you also have done some work with uh, the, uh, the wonderful Nick Bostrom over there at uh, Future for Humanity, uh, dealing with uh, existential risks for the planet. So the scary part of, of kind of, of your job. So Maybe if you don't have to talk long about it, but talk about, a little bit about the work you did there and some of those risks, which will, you know, the main one we'll discuss is climate change, but, you know, other things like global pandemics, super volcanoes, nuclear threats, et cetera. Uh, maybe just talk a little bit about the, the kind of work there and what you sunk your teeth into there and gone off to do your own thing after. Yeah. So when I worked at the Future of Humanity Institute, I mainly worked in the boring but yet impactful part of uh, administration. So essentially being an amplifier to the rest of the research team. So for Nick personally, it meant helping him with the publishing of, of uh, superintelligence mm -hmm. that he was working uh, on at the time um, with someone like Sean, who is now the director of the Center for the Study of Existential Risk. It meant... Uh, helping him in terms of looking over some of the grant applications and administration and, and web stuff for uh, establishing the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge, which sort of became this sister institute, if you will, to the things that we were doing at the uh, Future of Humanity Institute. Uh, so just trying to work as a sounding board to the rest of the researchers, uh, making sure that they had everything that they, they needed to succeed. Um, but I have to tell you that uh, working for the Future of Humanity Institute was actually my long-term dream, more or less, for several years. Mm. Um, and I thought that I would need a, a, a PhD and eventually become a professor, et cetera, et cetera, to, to work there. So I was quite surprised when, when I was uh, offered a job there quite early on. And the reason why I wanted to work there in the first place is, um, was my belief that the far future is uh, really important and something that we don't spend enough resources in, in terms of figuring out how the actions that we take today can propagate into the far future for good or for worse. Um, so the actions that we take today can, can profoundly impact the, the future. So uh, Nick Bostrom, uh, who, who um, was the director of the uh, and um, started the Future of Humanity Institute, had this idea of astronomical waste. So, I mean, essentially, if you look at these population curves of, of sentient beings over like, you know, thousands or tens of thousands or even millions of, of years, uh, you know, an, an extreme scenario might be, okay, everyone dies because of a global pandemic, because of, uh, you know, extreme climate change or nuclear war or, um, you know, geoengineering gone wrong or whatever it might be. Um, and the fact of the matter is that it's not just killing all of the, you know, 8 billion people alive today, but, you know, the life on Earth may continue for, you know, at least another 
billion years. So it might be billions of people times billions of, of, of years, which is way more catastrophic than, than you would you know, originally think. Uh, but the same thing sort of applies for you know, scenarios that are not quite being you know, entirely dead, but let's say we um, build an Orwellian future like in 1984 with a perfect dictatorship that just exists over you know, thousands or tens of thousands of, of years and co- people living there are quite sort of miserable, then, then that is uh, also obviously a, uh, a bad thing. Uh, and I think um, Nick at the time had this stat around uh, how many people work on existential risks versus uh, studying something like the dung beetle. And turns out there are more researchers and more research being done on the dung, be- <laughs> dung beetle than, than extinction of, of all life on, on planet Earth. Uh, so that's why I started there in, in the first place, because I was uh, convinced by the idea that uh, working on global risks is the best thing that I can, uh, can do in order to have a positive impact on, on the world. Uh, and before I um, you know, went on, on the program here, you, you mentioned uh, Will McAskill. And uh, during that time in, in Oxford is also when the uh, effective uh, altruism uh, community uh, got started. So uh, some of those ideas that are quite sort of adjacent have, have also had a big, big and, and profound impact on you know, the, the, the things that I do today and the things that I did that led up to that point in, in working for the Future of uh, Humanity uh, Institute. So that's sort of a brief answer I did like you know uh, a lot of boring but I think quite uh, impactful uh, things in, in terms of uh, making sure that you know, I was able to amplify the work uh, of all of the other brilliant people that worked at the Future of Humanity Institute at the time. So with all these these folks that were, were there um, that were worried about uh, not just uh, <laughs> certain animals on the planet, but really, I mean, animals, you know, and studying them are important, but also existential risk is important. I'm assuming that you're familiar with the work of Toby Ord. He's, he's written a lot about this as well. Uh, I don't know if you know Richard Fisher. He just wrote The Long View, which is very, very interesting. Uh, Suddendorf, uh, Redshaw and Bully, they wrote a book called um, Invention of Tomorrow, I think. Uh, it's a fascinating book. It's kind of like an evolutionary thing about how we need to think about the future and, and how that works. And so, it sounds like more and more over the past couple of years, this idea of not only looking into, you know, what are the things that are going to do us in as a, as a species on the planet, but also just thinking of how do we navigate or adapt or correct for those things, but also how do we really think forward uh, in time, not just the next decade, but the next hundred years, the next thousand years, you know, um, and how do we do that? And so it sounds like a, a lot of your work is somewhat similar to that of sorts, but I guess where specifically do you find like you found like your kind of lane of like yeah you know you know Nick's doing this and you know Will's doing this and folks are doing different things in this space. But where did you kind of find your kind of lane of how you wanted to approach this? So I think the way I wanted to approach this 
is to look at the underlying incentive structures that lead to the risks in the first place. So I think a lo- lot of the risks that we're facing today are sort of some variant of the prisoner's dilemma, more or less. Uh, so, which essentially means that it's a set of perverse incentives where different agents or actors act in a way that is beneficial to them in the short ter- term, but detrimental to uh, all of, of, of life and on, on planet Earth in, in the long term. So to just sort of give some examples yep. here. Um, pro- corporations, they are legally obliged to maximize profit according to the rules of double entry bookkeeping that we invented six year, uh, 600 years ago. And people sort of take this way of accounting for, for granted. But as a matter of fact, it, it is just an invention. And that invention eventually got um, added into our legal system, sort of our legal operating system, how we operate. But they are obliged to maximize profit. And they need to do so in, in order to win in financial markets, to get access to investments, and so on and so forth. Otherwise, they will not survive in the long run. Um, but that has all sorts of different externalities. Uh, so they might release carbon emissions that are creating climate change that is uh, leading to huge biodiversity loss, where you know, 50% of all species will be extinct in the next a uh, few decades, uh, which is like existential to, to all of those uh, species, uh, obviously. Or to name another example of how uh, problems are, are sort of a result of perverse incentive structures and, and, and underlying game theory. Let's take nation states, uh, for, for instance. Uh, in order to survive over the long run, you need to maximize power mm. in some shape or form. There is a reason why we don't have indigenous communities anymore that lived in harmony with with nature. Most of them are gone because they did not optimize for military power and and military might. So that is sort of the currency of survival, if you wish, wish, amongst uh, nation states uh, as, as agents. So the dominant strategy is to build up your military, build more and more powerful weapons, uh, so going from swords to uh, archers uh, to Mongolian horse riders uh, to mach- guns and gunpowder to machine guns to atomic weapons. And there is no end to that arms race. So you sort of have this arms race that leads to, to existential risks. And it's the same underlying mechanics with uh, corporations like. Um, you need to maximize for profit. So if you sort of pollute more and have more access to the cheapest kind of energy, uh, then you will be more for profitable than, than your competitors. Yeah. And I think we see sort of some of these arms races even today. I mean, a lot of people are concerned about artificial intelligence. I mean, some of the even existing models of artificial intelligence can be used to uh, make it a lot easier to create like new dangerous 
forms of, of pandemics or chemical weapons and, and so on. And that has like been demonstrated. So you can check up, for instance, Dario, the founder of, of Anthropic and his testimony uh, to, to the Senate. But yet we're in sort of this arms race where uh, artificial intelligence companies need to build these capabilities to become more profitable, uh, despite it the fact that it might create long-term risks that are existential. Um, I mean, we had like the, the people that run these companies, they recently signed a, a, um, a statement uh, together with the founders of Deep Learning, uh, Jeffrey Hinton and, and Joshua Benjo. So it was signed by Demis from, from DeepMind. It was signed by Dario at Anthropic. It was signed by Sam Altman at OpenAI that AI might cause a existential threat similar to nuclear war and global pandemics. So that's the statement that they signed. Uh, but yet they're racing ahead uh, in order to build these capable systems, even though they know better. Uh, but that's how the incentive structures are built around profit maximization. I mean, the, their owners, their shareholders... Uh, need to keep them accountable to profit maximization because that's fundamentally what, what, what the uh, corporation is supposed to do. So I just sort of mentioned three global catastrophic threats or existential threats of, of power through nation states and nuclear weapons, uh, AI or climate change. Uh, and they're all related to us having the wrong set of metrics in terms of how success uh, is being um, evaluated or, or selected for in these different systems. Uh, so, okay, they're all a part of sort of the same uh, incentive structures from a game theoretical perspective. So how do we, need, how do we build new incentive structures? Uh, well, we need to look at accounting back again. Like, we invented this thing 600 years ago. We take it for granted. But all of those things, like risks from artificial intelligence or climate change or ocean acidification that are killing coral reefs or, or, or like the extinction of, of species, that's not taking it into account in, in the core calculus. Uh, so the idea and one of the reasons why I left the Future of Humanity Institute to pursue my current... Um, software company called Normative. It was to essentially build a next generation of accounting systems that take externalities into account, that can ultimately replace the profit and loss statement for uh, uh, corporations, and then maybe in the long run even replace uh, you know, GDP and the uh, nation-state version of, of, of a profit and loss uh, statement to, to finally change the overall incentive structures to be aligned with what we intrinsically value as, as humans or as living beings overall. And what we intrinsically like value is uh, to be living in happiness, to live in, in flourishing. Uh, and you can sort of figure that out, that this is the thing that you intrinsically value by just asking the question why a lot. I mean, maybe you buy a pair of, of, of new uh, shoes that you really like. And then you ask yourself the question, like, why did I buy this uh, pair of, of fancy shoes? And it might be, 
oh, because I want to look good and I want people to respect me or I want people to think that I'm cool. And okay, why do I want people to think that I'm cool? Uh, because maybe they'll respect me. Why do I want that? Uh, because I think that 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 would perhaps make me happier as a, as a you know human being. And why do I want to be happier? Uh, well, because I want to be happier. So yeah, so sort of in a sense reached like moral bedrock uh, where where you can't uh, you know reduce it to anything else. Um, and so yeah, it seems that one of the major uh, factors here is you're trying to really kind of get at the the base understanding of what are these incentives? What are these incentive structures? And so I guess that brings us, you've kind of been, uh, kind of been talking about this uh, of sorts, but you're talking about uh, Normative, which is uh, the company that, you're, uh, that you started. Um, tell us about Normative and how do you use, um, you know, kind of your math background for some of these pragmatic answers to things, not just certain types of idealism or nice campaigns, but really trying to create uh, a software that's saying, you know, how do we understand this? And then how do we provide it to, I think, mostly businesses of understanding certain things? And, and then we can talk about carbon accounting and things like that. But you just kind of tell us a little bit about what, how you see normative as trying to get at those incentives. So, first of all, maybe it would be interesting to go down memory lane and, sure. and history of how it got started. Sure, yeah. So the name normative is actually derived from uh, normative ethics. Mm. And normative ethics is a branch within philosophy concerned about what is the right thing to do in various types of situations. Mm. So any type of question that can be rephrased as an ought question is the type of questions that normative ethics try to, to answer. So do I uh, ought to uh, drink this uh, cup of coffee when it's uh, super late uh, and I probably need to you know, go up early to work tomorrow? So that, that could be like a very mundane question that, you know, technically speaking, normative ethics would, would be concerned with. Uh, it could also be how are we supposed to... Uh, build a system around uh, taxation um, that, that is fair. Like, how, how do we ought to do that? So, like, all types of questions that are non-empirical in nature. So, but the reason why I gave uh, that name to normative is that I had this idea of we need to reform how we account for success mm. in societies. Mm and be more inclusive and include externalities into the core profit and loss statements of businesses. Mm. So if the costs that a business is incurring on climate or human health and well-being, et cetera, et cetera, if those costs are properly reflected within the profit and loss statement of, of a business, uh, then the world would look quite different. Uh, but in order to solve that, that problem, accounting has to be uh, reformed. Um, so that was uh, the, the line of, of thinking. And I was sort of inspired by the utilitarian philosophy, a philosopher, Jeremy Bentham. So he, he invented a, a branch of normative ethics called utilitarianism. 
which is essentially saying that all we care about is to maximize happiness or well-being of sentient beings. Uh, and he, based on that sort of simple principle, uh, so this was in, in, in the 17th century, so quite a long time ago when slavery was, was still around and uh, being homosexual uh, could be, you could be faced with like, you know, death penalty and so on. But just based on that simple principle that actually the thing that we care about is the maximization of happiness or well-being, he came to a whole host of conclusions that were very modern at the time. Like slavery is wrong. Uh, we should probably care about other non-human animals as well. Uh, you know, different types of, of you know, sexual preferences or different type of family structures or whatever it might be, it really doesn't matter as long as it doesn't affect, you know, people's, people's happiness. I mean, to the contrary, he, he argued, like being homosexual, if it makes you happier, like why, why would you want to prevent it in the first place? So that was sort of very much a modern uh, point of view. Uh, but I think similarly, like the externalities that we care about, that is also due to sort of the consequences on uh, happiness or well-being. So, I mean, there is a reason why I don't give a crap about climate change on Venus, for instance, mm. because as far as I'm concerned, there are no sentient beings that can experience the effects from climate change uh, on, on, on Venus. But I care about it on planet Earth because it causes a great amount of species extinction uh, where you know, thousands of, of species are going extinct every single year as a result of, of climate change, for instance. So I just wanted to incorporate all of those aspects um, into how we account for things. So to answer your um, question around how, how did my mathematics background help, uh, to be honest, like not that much, or I mean, maybe a little bit. Mm. Um, so, I mean, there is uh, certain aspects of um, accounting that is simpler if you have a grasp of linear algebra and matrix multiplication and, and those sorts of, of, of things. Uh, but other than that, like my mathematics background, to be quite frank, didn't, didn't help uh, that much. Well, I bet probably like someone who is really afraid of mathematics would probably beg to disagree <laughs> like okay matrix multiplication that that sounds far from from simple so obviously i'm coming on uh, from it from from a biased sort of point of, of, of view where I've, I've studied real university mathematics and what we're doing is is quite sort of simple in uh in comparison uh but what did help however is in university i um, they started to have some courses at the time when, when I studied maths in computational mathematics, uh, where in fact you learn how to perform mathematics in a computer, which meant that I le learned basic programming in, in Python. And my, my teacher at the time decided that we're not going to go with MATLAB or any of the closed source type systems where we're going to do all of the computational mathematics and computational linear algebra in, in Python. Uh, and that, in fact, those skills uh, meant that I, I knew how to sort of apply some of the core accounting and, and build the first sort of uh, 
calculation engines for doing the accounting. Uh, so back when we started, the vision was super big. It was to incorporate all externalities on sentient beings into the core PL of, of businesses. Uh, but then we came to sort of the realization that we we need customers as well <laughs> in order to build a business. We need customers that are willing to, to pay for a product. Uh, and that vision was too big. Like, why would you as an enterprise uh, pay for a thing like that? I mean, how, how does that help me? How does that help my bottom line? Uh, but uh, during that time when we started, there started to be conversations around um, carbon emissions more particularly, uh, that in order to achieve global climate targets, uh, countries would need to, to mandate emissions reductions from, from enterprises. Uh, but obviously, in order to reduce emissions, you first need to measure your emissions. Uh, so a, a few years later, from the point where we started the business, it became uh, a legal requirement mm. in some parts of the world to, to do carbon accounting. Uh, so then we uh, thought to ourselves, climate change is obviously like one of the core and most important problems of the world. So let's focus on that and, and not try to solve for every single externality at, at once uh, and to just do that incredibly well and to build a business around that. Uh, and as we grow and become sort of more of the standardized choice for, for businesses, uh, for how to be compliant, then we can release more and more features. Because I think most businesses probably don't want to do bad for the world and to know sort of, uh, you know, how, how do you affect various types of ecosystems and social aspects and, and, and so on, uh, I think is going to be quite critical for business success in the future. Uh, but let's solve the proposition around carbon accounting. So that's, mm. that's what we're doing uh, today. But our, our mission is, is to make known and reduce the sustainability impact of all economic activities on the planet. Mm. So that our mission is, in fact, uh, larger than, than carbon. But carbon is the most important thing right now and what we're focusing on. So that was a I think long answer to a simple question. <laughs> no, that's that's perfect. That's perfectly fine. It's it's great. You explained it well. Uh, it's interesting to hear how it was. The vision was much more grand, uh, and how you know now it's you know you're focusing on one thing, which is which is great. So I, I do want to talk about uh, carbon accounting, but maybe I guess from your vantage point, your perspective, kind of give us the uh, the entrance into this. So climate change is a you know, one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest existential risks on the planet right now. Um, kind of give us the, from your perspective, what that landscape is, how much direction trickles down from, from COP, all the COP summits. Um, what is this 2050 deadline that I hear sometimes? Uh, and then just kind of, obviously, carbon emissions is a big thing. So how do we get, you know, into carbon accounting for that? So maybe just kind of Give us the 30,000 foot view and then zoom us into how carbon accounting comes into the picture. Yeah. So I think the big view here is that climate change is undeniably caused by the release of greenhouse gases where carbon emissions is the biggest greenhouse gas. Uh, methane is another important greenhouse gas. Uh, and 
right now we're seeing the consequences of that. So we're seeing increased hurricanes. We're seeing desertification. Uh, we are seeing food systems being disrupted, uh, leading to climate refugees crossing borders. We're seeing wildfires where, with property damage and, and people um, dying as a result. Uh, so we're seeing all of those things at the same time, uh, which is creating a response from the public, where people from the general public are realizing that this thing uh, is something that we have to do something about. So they, in turn, uh, have started to put pressure on politicians, using their consumer power uh, in relation to businesses that we're not going to consume what you have to offer uh, if you're not taking uh, climate change in, into account. Um, so that pressure on politicians, like electing you know, green parties or environmentally um, conscious parties uh, in, in government, that means that more and more countries are setting their own net zero uh, targets. Of, of saying that we need to be um, net zero by 2050, the, the, the latest. Uh, so the science, if you sort of zoom back, the science is quite clear. Um, we need to be below 1.5 degrees. Uh, in order to stay below 1.5 degrees, we need to slash our emissions in half every single decade. Uh, so that exponential shift is non-optional or non-negotiable, or as my good friend Johan Rockström says, he, you know, we can't negotiate with nature. Uh, it, it does what, what it is doing, and, and there is no way around it. Uh, so you can't negotiate with like core physics or the physics of, of climate right, change. Right, right. So the only choice here is to cut emissions in half every single decade. Uh, but the thing you need to do first as a country is that you need to commit and make the commitment. But even if we have countries that are going to the climate conference, so there is this UN conference called COP, uh, where, where um, country representatives go to negotiate climate change and, and treaties, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so even if it's countries that are going there and setting their climate agendas and net zero targets, it's the companies within the jurisdiction of those countries that need to get the work done. Um, so countries setting net zero target, responding to their like electorates or, or like the politicians responding to their electorates being concerned, that then trickles down to uh, corporations. Uh, so... And it has done so, so through a series of, of regulations. So there's regulations around the financial industry uh, and you know, big pension funds uh, that, that sort of need to start to take some of this into account in their fiduciary duties. Uh, and um, pension funds are responsible for like 50% or so of, of global investment flows. Uh, so that has implications on corporations needing to take it seriously because they want access to those capital flows. Uh, 
But then in terms of other legal frameworks, there are the various types of disclosure frameworks where um, companies, for instance, in the European Union, companies with uh, more than 250 employees uh, need to disclose their carbon emissions side by side with their like financial statements, their profit and loss statements in their annual reports. Uh, so that's, again, sort of going in the direction that I uh, dreamt about uh, 10, 10 years ago when I uh, started Normative, where you know, externalities is sort of starting to become uh, incorporated into the core profit and loss statements of, uh, of businesses. Um, so to sort of summarize, it's, it's coming uh, from people that use their purchasing power, people that are using their democratic power in elections, that puts pressure on the financial institutions and uh, that are putting pressure on uh, corporations um, and also obviously closing the circle in a way, getting that direct pressure from uh, citizens uh, who are you know, con- consumers as well and willing to pay a premium or uh, exclude products that are not uh, environmentally uh, friendly. And that creates the incentive environment to actually track emissions over time. Because if you can't measure emissions, you can't manage uh, emissions. Uh, and that's uh, what we at Normative are helping large enterprises to do. Yeah, so there's this strange uh, kind of interplay here with all of these big kind of uh, factions going on. So you have it at the, let's say, the individual level of the citizens around the world. Uh, Some countries are, I mean, I I have this, this, I've had this conversation a few times with different people and say nobody really needs to know. We don't need to create awareness of climate change anymore. Everybody knows it's happening. Even people that deny it know it's happening, right? Whether they admit to it or not. We all know it's happening. And we all know that it's because of man's involvement that it's happening so fast. I mean, I think most people know that. I'd like to find the person on the planet that isn't aware of this. I'm sure people know this um, almost around the world. So there's this element of, you know, activism is important and it's still good to have a good pressure applied from, from, from the electorate, but, uh, and some countries do this better or, or worse, but, uh, but then there's right. Uh, these summits, you have nation states, you have these big governments that, you know, set these kind of, uh, benchmarks, if you will, and these timelines. And there's a lot that, again, depending on your, uh, your country's way of operating, you can, <laughs> do this with draconian measures, or you can do this with democratic measures, or you could do this with no measures at all, I guess. So, you know, people are doing these things at a kind of a, a national or federal or even global level. So I guess the, 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 the question I have here is, is you've decided or have seen that working with uh, corporations and businesses, it sounds like in the private sector, is where you know, this is where the cake's getting baked sort of thing, right? This is where this is kind of happening. This is the kind of front lines of things. And changing those incentive structures um, is going to be instrumental because they're the, you know, when you're talking about huge businesses or huge corporations, um, they're the ones that are pushing this out. And I'm sure you, you know, some people are, are 
are willing to do this and some people are resistant and, you know, maybe some people are willing at first and then they're not as willing when you start getting in there and telling them all these things that you can and can't do. So I guess why, I guess for you was the corporation angle, uh, really instructive? Cause I think most people, when they think of climate change, I think very idealistically, they think of activism awareness you know putting you know call your senator call your you know parliament you know whomever your your MPs all these people uh and that's important obviously but not a lot of people i i hear as much you know are putting emphasis on corporations in ways that are pragmatic and and helpful to actually do something so i guess what was it i guess for you to kind of say i'm going to play in this pond and try and figure yeah. out how to change this The core reason is if you look at it from a factual point of view of where emissions actually occur, they occur in the op operations of corporations. So you might say like, oh, as a consumer, I'm, I'm causing a footprint of X, Y, and Z uh, if I purchase, I don't know, the uh, shirt that I'm wearing, for instance. Or I, I um, buy a car that's that, you know, I need to fill up every 16 kilometers or something like that. And I'm burning all this gas out into the air or something like that. Right? Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think the car would sort of be the exception because there is sort of a, there, it's, we, it's you operating the car that releases the greenhouse gas footprint. Mm -hmm. But with the exception of, of car, or if you have like, you know, heating with, with like an oil pan in your basement <laughs> or something like that. Right. Most of the emissions are not being caused by you directly. It's, I mean, you're still causing it sort of indirectly by, you know, purchasing this shirt, for instance. But the real emissions happen in the transportation of this shirt or, or the factory or the uh, uh, pesticides for the cotton of, of, of this shirt, etc. But all of these are uh, corporate operations aspects uh, and same thing with governments right um, governments have the climate targets but it's not like it's the building of the senate or house of representatives that are releasing all of the carbon emissions it's it's the big enterprises within the jurisdiction of, of the governments so in order to actually have a change and make a difference uh, you need to work uh, where emissions are happening. And you need to work with the core business processes where, where emissions are, are happening. Um, so I think that's the first point. Uh, I think the second point is the idea of the sort of consumer-based uh, footprint and uh, like conscious consumerism and so on. And just to be clear, I think it is important yeah. that you think about flying. I think it is important that you think about the things that you buy and do not buy. But there is a huge information asymmetry. Like how are you supposed to think about those things if companies don't disclose those things in the first place, sure. which they don't do? I mean, they have like sort of vague language about something being green or something being sustainable, but where are the facts and figures uh, around like carbon emissions? Uh, 
So it's only companies that can disclose them properly in order for sustainable consumerism to work. And if you look at sort of the history of your personalized carbon footprint and the idea of a personalized carbon footprint, it was, as a matter of fact, invented by big oil in order to shift responsibility from them onto the consumers. And them saying like, hey, I mean, we're actually just doing what you are paying us for. So, I mean, we don't have any responsibility on this. The responsibility is on this, as, on you as a consumer. But we wouldn't argue like this with anything else, like the health and safety of food, for instance. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. oh, you bought an apple in the supermarket. It was poisoned with lead, then you died. And like, sorry, you didn't check the labels. <laughs> you know, it, it, it said somewhere or like, You should have asked, like, even if it's not our responsibility to disclose it, it was just like you being dumb. Like, you wouldn't argue that way uh, around anything else. Uh, It is the responsibility of the uh, corporations that are releasing the carbon emissions to to actually manage those uh, carbon emissions. And I think most enterprises now are realizing that it's actually good for business if they do that, because in fact, they will de-risk their businesses and have more sustainable growth over time, et cetera, et cetera. And until recently, I think it was uh, maybe end of, uh, I think it was end of uh, Obama's first term here in the United States, there was all of these, there, we did not have, uh, I think at a, a federal level, regulations that if some kind of let's say meat, salmonella and chicken or mad cow or something like that. If there was a, a, a line of, of, of food that was bad, they wouldn't say anything and they wouldn't recall it. It was just sitting there on the shelves in stores. And it wasn't until uh, I think a law was passed in the, the, the Food and Drug Administration, uh, maybe 2011, I, I could be wrong on that, that said, no, you have to pull this. You have to pull this. Even if you lose money, you, people, people can't get be getting sick because they didn't know and you, and, and the more requirements for these things. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's like a, kind of like you're saying, like a no brainer, but even more recently in the United States, I, I know maybe Europe has some different laws, but you know, it's, that didn't even happen up until more recently, which is, which is wild to think about. I was going to ask though about uh, a couple of things here. So, you know, like when you were, when I was, when I was younger, there's this big push for, and this is probably some of it's from Rachel Carson and her stuff, you know, in, in the '60s and, and that kind of wave of things. But you know, when when I was younger, you know, there was this big push for individuals and consumers to 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 recycle, right? It was a big push, right? Really big people. You got to recycle. Don't just throw things away. Don't litter. It was all these campaigns, you know, all these things like that. And you know, I, I wonder um, with with businesses. You're you're seeing more and more and more. I would say every five years, it's more and more and more. Where it will say this was made from you know these types of products that were you know energy efficient or they were you know carbon neutral or they were you know et cetera et cetera et cetera. Down to you know the phones that we buy, down to computers we we use, the the clothes we wear, all of these things. And I guess is that. Is that is that a shift, right? Where companies are saying, "Hey, like you know, we have to do this." You know, I think, and you you get some of the big companies. I mean, Apple's an example where they do this. I know there's been other companies that do this where they really want to do that. But 
I guess for some people, I hear this argument sometimes with, with cars, which is, look, Lamar for buying an electric car, but it's just too damn expensive. And I, you know, I, I, I wonder if sometimes at the end of the day, it goes by kind of like what you're saying, incentive structures. And from an individual basis, the, the basis is, well, if it's too expensive or I don't have another alternative, then what am I going to do? Does that not behoove companies to say, how do we find alternatives to use things in, let's say, a carbon neutral way in the production of it? So it, the, the, the responsibility is more on us, not the consumer, but to have alternatives. We saw this so much with like plastic. Plastic is like this evil. And, and don't get me wrong, plastic in the ocean is a huge issue. But there was never alternatives for people. So my thing was just like, look, you know, obviously plastic is, is great for some things when we decide like, you know, when I have my Tupperware and I put like food left over in it, like it's great, right? It's a great invention in that way. Obviously the scaling of it now, but like, okay, but you can't tell someone don't use plastic anymore. Let's get away all the plastic straws and give them no feasible alternative. No one's going to give a shit if it's carbon neutral. Like, I mean, I hate it using paper straws just as much as the next guy. It's just one of those things where it doesn't work. So I guess, how do you think about that as well? Of like, well, what are the other on a kind of metric scale? Like, what are the options that at least on, I'm still on the consumer level? that these corporations are going to have to give to people because if there isn't one, you know, or if the quality is terrible, you know, that's, they're, they're not going to do that. Right. If Apple all of a sudden starts making terrible phones and computers, but they're, you know, more green friendly, no one cares because they want yeah. all these things. So how do, how do, how do we deal with that kind of thing in terms of s- supply demand? I think there's two different questions baked into that. So there's, first of all, the question around green claims. So a green claim can be this is made with recycled materials, this is carbon neutral or net zero or sustainable, et cetera, et cetera. So those are claims on products. But then also to your point, you have the question around optionality on the marketplace, that if I don't like this, I can buy this thing uh, instead. Um, So on the question of optionality, uh, or the question on both of those things. We, we need government regulation and government uh, interventions to create the right type of incentives. So we need like, to spend a lot of money and we need to spend trillions over the next few years uh, on creating the right type of options. So it is investing in renewable electricity, in, investing in electrification, investing in technologies like fossil-free steel or uh, emissions-free concrete uh, or green hydrogen. I mean, we need to invest in all of those core technologies in in order to have options. Uh, So so that's that's the first thing. On on green claims, uh, that has to be standardized. And it is being standardized by the European Union. So they are, uh, something called the Green Claims Directive is coming into force next year, uh, which means that any green claim that you make need to be substantiated with uh, data on the product. Uh, Because right now we have a bit of a global race to the bottom where enterprises have seen that making green claims 
actually means that more people buy your products. Uh, but if that green claim is not substantiated with data, I mean, the easiest way of doing it is to just put like, invade, invent your own type of label, invent your own type of sig- uh, symbol, have a like, you know, make it green, have a cute animal on it or whatever, yeah, yeah. and then say that, you know, here is a new, new label. It's a type of... And, and people are more likely to buy it, yeah. but it's not substantiated with, with data. So mm-hmm. that's what the uh, European Union is now targeting with, with the Green Claims Directive. And then you have what you could dub the Brussels effect, that the European Union is creating a new standard, and then it's easier for enterprises to actually just follow that standard worldwide. Mm. So for instance, it happened with energy efficiency labels, like when you go and, and buy a dishwasher or fridge or whatever, like you can see the rating, like, you know, double A, B, C, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that is now a global standard and global norm for how to label the energy efficiency of products. And, and the same thing has to happen with green claims, mm. where it needs to be uh, supported by the right level of uh, carbon footprint analysis and the right level of uh, carbon accounting or uh, life cycle assessments, if, if you want to go broader than, than just the claim on uh, carbon emissions. So you need to look at the entire life cycle of the product from the uh, production to distribution to uh, end of life and, and how it's disposed or being recycled, et cetera, et cetera. So you need to look at it from a holistic perspective and, and calculate the uh, emissions in the entire value chain and, and supply chain. Um, so I think if you have those two things, if you create optionality and if you create like a non-biased uh, accounting that supports like the labeling of, of products, then all of a sudden consumers can make a fair distinction and, and a fair, uh, you know, um, choice uh to to uh yeah make make the bet the choice that is better for the planet yeah it sounds like with the labeling and stuff it sounds like a lot of that has become you know very much a a status thing it's a type of signaling of like well look at look at us as a company we're doing these things it's like um you know 15 20 years ago when people started doing the organic thing you know half that shit is not organic it's a label they put on it whatever you know they they do enough there's nothing to really have you know data to to kind of support that so i mean i kind of see this stuff as simple as like how we have nutritional facts we didn't for a long time but nutritional facts to make sure like yes i should know uh does this have nuts in it and if i have a nut allergy i probably shouldn't buy this or exactly um you know as it's become more sophisticated well like how do i look at saturated fats and trans fats and like if i'm someone that's diabetic well i kind of have to know that so i can buy the thing that has less of that. So I don't, you know, put stuff, you know, and so I just see this stuff is kind of in that sort of similar vein of, yeah. And, and if you have more options, well, some people might still buy it. Other people might buy this one and then might buy another one or something like that. I don't think it's going to crush economic kinds of things or anything like that. I think it's just being a little bit more transparent. So I, I do want to ask though, this is an important distinction that I think a lot of people get mixed up, you know, myself included. I've, I've got this mixed up at different points. It's this difference between net zero and carbon neutral. People get this mixed up all the time. So kind of clarify these two, these two terms. Yeah. Uh, and before I do, I actually want to respond to something yeah, yeah, that, that you said earlier on 
um, the labeling and nutrition facts mm -hmm. and so on. I think my vision for the world is going even beyond that because you might care about the nutrition on, on the product because it will personally like benefit you in, in a clear sort of way. Uh, but the same thing doesn't necessarily apply for cli climate. And what, what I mean by that is, what if you lived in a world where you knew that every product that you buy is being sustainable because every enterprise that are producing those goods and services have set the net zero target mm -hmm. and they have done what they need to do in order to decarbonize that value chain. Mm -hmm. So you sort of know by default that this product was produced with renewable electricity in, in the production facilities. It was transported by electric cars powered by solar and, and wind and, and hydro, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think that would be the ideal world where you don't have to put it on the consumer at all. Mm. It's just the default position mm. that what you're buying will not destroy the planet, similar to how it should be the default position that you, know, you, you can't buy a lead-poisoned apple uh, in, in the grocery store. Uh, so I, ju I just wanted to follow no, up no, on that. No, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think that that's something that I think we we can aggressively pursue, and I think it's it's something where you know more and more people are realizing that okay, we we have to get our act together. So I I, I hope that more and more people are 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 you know open to 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 doing that. Yeah. So about the, and the to, go ahead. yeah. To answer your question around the difference between carbon neutral and net zero. So carbon neutral, the definition of carbon neutral is uh, you might have a product uh, with a certain amount of carbon emissions embedded into the production process. Everything, let's say it's a laptop computer, everything from the mining of the precious metals to the assembly of the CPU and all of the different parts and transportation, et cetera, et cetera. So you have that entire carbon footprint of the typical like, supply chain for, for uh, the laptop computer that you're buying. Uh, so carbon neutral is when it's carbon neutral uh, supported by carbon offsets. Mm. Uh, so carbon offsets, the idea is actually great as an idea that, okay, if it releases this much carbon emissions, um, then what, what if I plant enough trees to absorb that carbon emission uh, or do something else that offsets that carbon emission? Uh, then in theory, like net on net, uh, my purchase would be carbon neutral. Uh, so that, that is the definition of, of carbon neutrality. Uh, and the problems with that, however, uh, is that most of these carbon off or the problems are twofold, as a matter of fact. First of all, there is an accuracy gap in the accounting and the way that companies account for carbon emissions. So we have seen this over and over again. We, we have done our own meta study and turns out that carbon emissions are uh, generally 60% higher than what uh, enterprises claim that they are because they don't have and they don't have the know-how or knowledge for how to 
make carbon emissions accounting right. Mm. So that, that is like, and sometimes it's like a factor of 10 where they only account for a tenth of their total carbon emissions. Mm. So the baseline for which you buy these carbon offsets or plant those trees are fundamentally wrong. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is the offsets in and of themselves. A lot of them actually entirely fail to reduce emissions. So take the tree planting, for instance. It sounds good in theory, uh, but you have the problem of permanence, that these trees, uh, the carbon emissions that you release in the atmosphere uh, will exist there for like, you know, hundreds of, of years, if, if not thousands of, of years with, with a certain like half-life. Um, so whilst the trees that you plant might only be there for 10 and 20 years, so it's not comparable. Like one exists in the atmosphere for a really long time and the trees only exist for a short amount of time until they are, uh, because if, if tr- when, when trees, you know, rot again, they sort of release <laughs> that emission back into the atmosphere again. So it's the question of permanence. Mm. Another question is the question of leakage. So as a landowner, I might decide that, okay, all of the um, trees that I'm planting, or I might even preserve a patch of forest and say, you're paying me to preserve this forest that would otherwise be cut down. Great. It's having a positive impact. Uh, But as a matter of fact, as a forest owner, I might own multiple pieces of forest. So if I pay, get paid to get this part preserved, then I'm cutting down the forest somewhere else instead. So then the actual impact is zero. Uh, so we see this over and over again, and there has been a lot of scandals with carbon offsetting, where uh, some studies should suggest that like 80 or 90% of uh, carbon offsets fail to reduce emissions. So, so that means if only 10% of them like reduce emissions at all, and let's say you only account for 10% of your total emissions. So if you multiply those numbers together, you might have some businesses or products that are saying, claiming carbon neutrality, but they're actually only reducing like, uh, or, or, or offsetting, if you will, 1% uh, of, of the total emissions. Uh, net zero, on the other hand, says that you need to reduce the emissions yourself uh, first and foremost. So in order to be net zero, that means that I need to uh, reduce all of my emissions uh, within my own operations, uh, but I also need to look at my value chain. So if I, am, uh, if I sell laptop computers, for instance, I need to make sure that the assembly of that laptop computers are not releasing any emissions or that the mining is emissions-free, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, so I need to make the proper investments in my value chain to actually reduce emissions. Um, um, I can't sort of you know, buy myself uh, out of, of, of the problem through uh, carbon offsets. Then there might be a residual of 10% that we don't know how to reduce yet. And for those 10% of emissions, I might buy high quality carbon removals that are permanent like direct air carbon capture or um, biochar, for instance, um, that, that we sort of dig below ground 
And there is like various ways of, of, of achieving like high quality removals that has like permanence and, and non-leakage and additionality and uh, all of those things that, that are important. Um, says, that's, I, you know, again, I, I think myself included, I think most of the listeners won't really know a lot of these things, which is alarming because I think maybe some people if we if we give the charitable view, maybe some companies they're just working with the data and the numbers they have, so they, there's no nefarious intention here. But I have to imagine that there are other companies that probably know that, and they say, "Well, I get to check my box, I get to say carbon neutral, and I move on with it, and I don't have to worry about it." So, I guess this is where a lot of the work that you do comes in. So, how how when when looking at carbon offsets and maybe credits as well how are we how how is what you're doing at normative with carbon accounting helping companies to say okay well here's what it's actually going on here's the actual numbers and here's the space uh, and lastly how is that different from ton year accounting so you can kind of explain both but kind of get into mm. the details of of carbon accounting and some of those differences yeah so you can sort of look at it as the debit and credit side of, of the accounting. So what we deal with at Normative with carbon emissions accounting is sort of the debit side, if, if you will, like giving an accurate um, account of how much carbon emissions has resulted from your corporate activities uh, and the activities happening in your value chain. So that's the credit side. The debit side is sort of, you know, investing in the carbon offsets or, or high quality, I mean, ideally high quality removals. Mm. Uh, and for that side of things, uh, then ton-year accounting matters a lot, uh, like, like you talked about. So uh, before I said that, um, I, I raised the question of permanence, uh, that let's say I plant a few trees. Uh, and the biomass of all of those trees um, absorb uh, like, uh, I don't know, a ton of CO2. Mm -hmm. And those trees are up there for like 10 years before someone cuts them down again and the carbon emissions are being released somehow. Um, then you have 10 ton years because you have like one ton of, of biomaterial times 10 years equals 10 ton years. Uh, but then you might have something else, like um, you uh, have direct air carbon capture uh, and you have fans uh, that capture this carbon emission and, and you put it into some sort of mineralized rock. And this rock, it will exist inside of this rock for like, you know, I don't know, a million years. Or let's say, be conservative and say 10,000 years. Uh, and you do that for a ton of carbon emissions. Then you have essentially created, uh, you know, t uh, 10,000 ton years. Um, because you multiply the number of years of permanence with, with the total of, of number of tons uh, extracted. So on the sort of credit side of things, we, we need accurate ton-year accounting. Mm. And this goes sort of beyond the scope of what we at Normative do. We deal with the credit side of things, mm. uh, or sort of debit side of things. Um, and then, then we might 
recommend uh, other sort of marketplaces that have uh, high quality carbon removals. Um, but but we we don't account for for those high quality carbon removals. But however, if we partner with such a marketplace, we we make sure that they uh, follow a certain set of principles. So they're actually accounting for for the credit uh, in a way that that has uh, integrity. Uh. So when when you're when you're dealing with all of these these things, I guess there's. This might be a good place to introduce the the idea of uh, scopes one, two, and three, right? Because I'm thinking about there has to be a type of system here, right? So, like, you know, let let's take out the individual user for a minute, right? <clears throat> everyone's driving electric cars and has you know solar panels on their on their on their roofs, right? So let's say everyone's doing their 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 part, right? When you when you have companies, um, you know how how is it just two two questions here? Is it just scale? So the company that has 250 employees and the company that has 50,000 employees. Second, is it, I would imagine, it also has to be with uh, companies that are in particular domains. So the ones that are you know, drilling into the earth or they're you know, getting coal or they're you know, in, a, in a, unfortunately, a sweatshop somewhere and they're, you know, there's certain places where I would imagine some companies or some warehouses or whatever are going to emit more than the person that, you know, just has an office building and they're, you know, whatever. It's a kind of simple thing. So maybe you can explain how that works, but, you know, maybe this is where the scopes one, two, and three. Describe for us what that is for listeners and then what's the kind of hierarchy here, if you will. Yeah. Um, so in the carbon emissions accounting, um, you follow a protocol called the Greenhouse Gas Protocol that was uh, developed um, the first iteration 20 years ago, but it has been updated since. Um, and it was created by the WBCSD, our World Business Council of Sustainable Development and the World Resource Institute. Um, and that is the framework that we follow when we do carbon emissions accounting. And it divides emissions into three different scopes. Um, and I can first tell you what the scopes are about. And then I want to tell you sort of the rationale for dividing emissions into those different scopes in, in the first place. Because I think it relates to the question around the difference between, you know, I don't know, running a mine where you sort of have emissions effects directly or like running an, an, an office building or, or something else. Uh, but scope one is essentially the emissions that are happening directly inside of your own operations. Um, so let's say you own vehicles uh, and those vehicles have combustion engines and they release carbon emissions directly. Uh, or you might want to heat your uh, I don't know, factories or, or, or facilities, and you might actually have on-site an oil uh, pan or whatever, uh, where you put in oil, you burn that in order to create heat, and that heat is dispersed through, like, um, yeah, radiators uh, in, inside of your, your buildings. Uh, so those are just some examples of scope one emissions, emissions that are happening directly inside of your own operations. 
Scope two are emissions that happen uh, because you consume various types of utilities. So you consume electricity or you consume heating, uh, where in fact someone else might own the heat uh, pan um, and someone else might own the power plant that produces the electricity. Uh, but there is a very clear correlation. If you use more electricity, they have to put more coal in, into the coal power plant. Um, so that's scope two emissions. So technically, it's not happening within your operational control, but there is a super clear causal chain. Um, scope three are all of your value chain based emissions, um, upstream and downstream. Uh, so it might be purchased goods and services. Um, so let's say you buy, um, let's take us, for instance, us at Normative. I mean, we have a carbon footprint. So we buy a lot of computers for our employees to do the coding and programming or sales or whatever it might be. But all of those computers have carbon emissions uh, in, in the supply chain of, of the production of those uh, computers. Um, so, so that is an example of scope three emissions. Or let's say I'm a, an investor and I invest in a bunch of companies that are releasing carbon emissions. Uh, that might be inside of category 15 in scope three, which is financed uh, emissions. So in fact, by investing in all of those companies, uh, I give them a bunch of money and they're using that investment money to keep their operations up and running. And that operation might uh, re release carbon emissions. Uh, so you have these different subcategories. Transportation is another example. I mean, I, I might purchase the service of, of transportation if I'm a retailer, um, you know, sending the, the uh, thing that the consumer has bought, like the uh, T-shirt and, and you know, using a transportation supplier to, to, to send that to you. Uh, so the fact is that my scope three emissions is someone else's scope one emissions. Mm -hmm. So if you sort of sum all of the emissions in, in the world uh, and sum them up, all of the scope one emissions of all companies in the world, it would be sort of roughly equal to the world's total emissions. Mm -hmm. So then you might ask, like, why do we need scope two and scope three at all? If everyone just takes responsibility for their scope one, everything would be fine. Uh, the problem is that, again, you have these perverse incentives with a race to the bottom dynamics. Um, so, for instance, a way for me to get rid of my scope one emissions is to say, oh, actually, I'm just going to move the production to another country uh, where the emissions are released. Um, and so then I can pretend that I'm, I'm, I'm not having any carbon emissions. Or you might even break out the emissions intense activities into a different legal entity. So you might say, um, if you're a power generating company that, oh, from now on, I'm only dealing with renewable electricity. But in fact, I've created a new legal entity uh, that owns all of my coal power plants. And I am directly an owner of that legal entity. Mm -hmm. So then I can, through creative bookkeeping, make my emissions go away. Uh, so if you don't take like scope two and scope three into account, you sort of create incentives for 
people to use creative bookkeeping to make their emissions go away. Uh, but if you take scope three to account, you argue that you know, even if the emissions are not happening within your own operations, it's like consumer demand from you as an, an, an entity that create these emissions in the first place. So, so if it wasn't for you uh, as the laptop, uh, the seller of laptop computers, some of these mines that released carbon emissions in, I don't know, Democratic Republic of Congo wouldn't exist in the first place. So it is, as a matter of fact, your responsibility to make sure that those uh, mines not release carbon emissions in, in, in the first place. Uh, and scope three emission is where businesses are failing. So I mean, you have right now you know, a bunch, I think almost 15,000 companies at this point with some sort of net zero target, uh, but they're all failing to reduce emissions in the pace that they need to reduce emissions. And almost all of that is embedded into scope three. Uh, so if you take an average business, 90% of the emissions for that business is located in their value chain. And the reason why they fail to reduce emissions is that they don't have the data from the value chain. I mean, they need to know and have granular data of for all of my suppliers that I'm buying my you know, goods and services from, where are the emissions coming from? And if they have that data, they can, as a matter of fact, work together with those suppliers. So let's say I'm you know, a big, um, I don't know, food manufacturer or food reseller, then I might work with you know, the farmers in Latin America and, and giving them the right incentives to, to um, apply sustainable farming practices, for instance. Uh, but if I, I, if I didn't you know, have responsibility for my scope three, I, I wouldn't do that in, in the first place. So what do you make about the claims that some people will say of, well, you know, for, for some, many people will have this, this, uh, I think frustrating notion that any type of, if you're giving them data or you're telling them, look, you're releasing a lot of carbon emissions, you think it's this, but you know, it's actually this, or you think you've, you know, tried to correct for it, but there's still actually this amount that this is going to hurt small business. You're coming in here with all your data, with all of these things, and you need to reduce this and, 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 and inhibit this and do this. And, and what do you say about those claims that people may try to, to point and say, you know, this is just, this is, this is going to hurt economics. This is going to hurt production. This is going to hurt supplies, you know, lines of things, all these things. What do you, what do you say about those types of criticisms that we all hear sometimes? So I think there is like the macro and the micro perspective. So if you take the sort of macro, the perspective, um, the net zero transition is going to create way more jobs than coal, oil, or anything else. Uh, when you put sort of constraints in terms of regulation, it means that businesses need to adapt, adapt, they need to create and develop new technologies and invest in new technologies. And that will create a lot of you know, jobs and, and opportunities, uh, but also minimize the huge damages that we're seeing to uh, property and livelihoods through 
uh, famines and the certifications and hurricanes and, and so on. Uh, so that's the macro perspective. With the micro perspective, speaking to some of those businesses, I, I would say like, hey, I hear you. Like, this is complicated. And as a matter of fact, it's probably not your fault as a small business that we're facing climate change today. I mean, you just want to build and, and have a livelihood and to do the right thing. Um, so as a matter of fact, you need to have the right incentives to, for, for decarbonization to happen. Uh, and that needs to happen both through like large enterprise buyers. So if I'm a small, uh, you know, let's say small soybean farmer in Brazil, for instance, um, you know, I need to, I need their support and, and the incentives to uh, create those um, sustainable farming practices. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the responsibility of Unilever or Nestle or some of these large enterprises to, to create those incentives for the farmers. And furthermore, it's up to the governments to create those types of incentives or financial institutions to say like, here you actually have a low interest loan uh, that will help you in the transition for doing the right thing. Uh, so I think if we are building a system where the transformation towards net zero is hurting the most marginalized people, we're fundamentally doing it wrong. Uh, and fundamentally, it also will not scale. Um, you need to create the right incentives in place for like you know, uh, millions of, of small businesses to decarbonize. And I think the right way of doing that is to put enough sort of both legislative pressure on, on, on the you know, larger enterprises that are controlling these global value chains of, of you know, small enterprises. So the question I have there with that is, I mean, obviously, I, you, I'm sure you're not going to tell me all the companies you work with, right? So it's confidential information of sorts. But, um, but what happens when you're dealing with, well, I guess let me ask, I mean, do you guys deal with companies globally or, or just in the United States or in Western Europe or, you know, my question here is, is what happens when you're dealing with a company uh, or corporation that has different rules within the country, right? So like what China and India are doing, they're going to have different laws, if any, than what Germany, the United Kingdom and the United States are doing. What do you do when it's a kind of thing of like, well, you know, the, the, <laughs> here's, we have to be mindful of what the country's guidelines are or what the regulations are. And that might be different from this country. But here's what you can do as a corporation, minding the kind of boundary set by maybe the legislative or federal rules there. How do you kind of, I guess, oscillate between those kinds of things there? Mm. So first of all, like the carbon accounting in and of itself is in all jurisdictions around the world based on the same sets of standards. Mm. So that's the greenhouse gas protocol for the carbon accounting and um, the ISSB 
uh, by IFRS is sort of the main standard for carbon disclosures, like how you disclose that accounting in, in the first place. So that is more or less the same uh, worldwide, which is, is good. Uh, but then obviously the regulation in terms of how often do you need to disclose this information, what are the penalties, who do you need to report it to, et cetera, et cetera, uh, will be different. So you can sort of, to take an analogy here, uh, like financial accounting through double entry bookkeeping is the same all across the world. Um, and so your profit and loss statement in, in China is going to be like same as in US or, or Sweden and so on. So there is like a common set of standards for, for evaluating the performance of, uh, of businesses, which is great. Mm. But then obviously like taxes on profit will be wildly different in the same way carbon taxes are, are, are different in different uh, jurisdictions. Uh, so we do carbon accounting. That's the same uh, for all of the other sort of legal contexts. Mm -hmm. It's important for our clients to be informed. Um, we have a brilliant climate strategy team. We have a carbon legislation tracker that, that we're uh, keeping up to date. So we are you know, trying to inform our, our clients uh, around all of the things that are happening on carbon legislations and, and so on. Uh, but I mean, at some point in time, it, it, it will be you know, sort of hard to, to keep up. So the best we can do is to provide the best possible and most accurate carbon accounting. And, and then it's uh, to, to a large extent up to the enterprises to, um, to know what's going on in their particular jurisdiction. But with that being said, I mean, our, we, we have a climate strategy team that, that, that help with, uh, with, with those, uh, those things as, as well. Uh, but hopefully in, in sort of the long run, uh, enterprises will be more and more uh, informed them, themselves so we can focus on the uh, carbon accounting and, and sort of software aspects. Uh, and I think especially around mitigation and, and reduction and help our clients figuring out like what are their core transition plans, how can they do the right things, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's 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 helpful to know, especially with the kind of global standards that are in place. Uh, this is sort of a footnote, but I'll just since I have you, I'm curious for your opinions. There's a handful of countries that do cap and trade. And I remember oh, a long time ago, I mean, we were considering, I think, I think early Obama, just out of Bush years into early Obama here in the United States of, could we also do a cap and trade? And that was basically dead on arrival. You know, I don't know if you know anything about Americans, but you know, Americans, we don't like being told what to do. And it's just like absolutely obnoxious half the time. But uh, <laughs> I guess that's kind of how we started the country and how we still are. It's just very, very ornery. But um yeah, I mean, a cap and trade is like, I mean, nobody talks about that here in the US, but that does go on in other countries. Um, do you find, again, this is a little bit, again, a footnote, not exactly for, for what you do, but I'm sure you, you maybe work in countries that have this. I mean, do, do you see that as, as, as being effective? A lot of people like it, um, but is it, do you think it is effective for in some parts of the world that it is doing what it aims to do, right? You're using a certain amount and then you have certain things that which you can and can't use. How do you, 
how do you see it, I guess? So first of all, I just want to put in the caveats that I'm not an expert on cap and trade. From, but from what I've read and from what I sort of remember, um, some of these schemes are like marginally effective. Yeah. But the big problem is like, is the cap ambitious enough? Yeah. <laughs> I think that is the main problem why, why a lot of these schemes have been sort of inefficient like is the is the cap ambitious enough um because if if you have like a very strict cap uh then obviously it will sort of be quite expensive uh to to buy the rights from uh, other other players because it's a question around supply and demand and with a very strict cap uh you have uh, Low, low uh, supply, but, but a high demand, which means that, that it becomes quite expensive quite quickly, which is important to create the right level of incentives. Uh, and if you look at sort of overall carbon taxes and average price of carbon in the world, I think right now uh, it's around like five US dollars per ton of carbon emissions released. Uh, but it has to be uh, 20 times that amount in order for us to actually achieve uh, our climate targets of, of slashing emissions in half this decade, slashing it in half the, the next decade, etc. So, I mean, we need to increase these, the price of carbon by a factor of 20 in order to achieve our targets. And that means that much stricter cap in, in the cap and trade schemes that might meet, mean other types of, of carbon taxes and so on. Uh, the European Union has like the CBAM now, for instance, to avoid uh, leakage. So I talked about leakage before um, in carbon offsets, but there is also sort of the leakage of accounting that I talked around in the context of scope three, that you might move the emissions heavy activities outside and, and for the European Union most of those emissions heavy activities are outside the borders of the um, European Union so that is sort of a way a cheat code to to avoid sort of the cap and trade of like let's move this to another country so we don't have to pay the tax and then we can just sort of uh, import it back into the European Union uh, but now they're in, within the CBAM, it's like this carbon tax at the European Union border to, to avoid that uh, level of, of leakage, uh, which I think is, is great and, and very much needed. So I think cap and trade can work, but we haven't given it the proper chance to work. I mean, we need the accurate accounting for it to work, uh, both in the, in the operations and in the, in the value chain to avoid uh, the leakage. But we need to be much more strict so that carbon has like the price, a price that is proportional to the impact that it's having in the world. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and I, I've heard mixed things about it. That it, It's somewhat effective. It's not a necessarily a bad thing, but they're kind of what you're saying. Is how, what is the cap on, on, on these things? So I want to come back to one thing we talked about, or we kind of, we didn't name it, but we were talking about it is greenwashing, which is quite frustrating um one there's this one concept i, I maybe i i i heard a, one of the talks you were giving that where i heard it but 
many people will talk about this kind of voluntary, if you will, greenwashing. It's sort of what we were mentioning. But sometimes there's an involuntary greenwashing of where people don't even realize that this is happening. Because you, and I guess this really is a question of like um, intent, right? What, what's, do, do, do they know they're doing it and they're trying to get away with it and just look good? Or do they really just have ignorance about some of this stuff? So maybe just kind of um, remind us about kind of how people typically define greenwashing and talk about this voluntary, involuntary kind of thing here. Yeah. So I think we more or less coined that term involuntary greenwashing. And it was the observation that a lot of greenwashing uh, was actually not caused by bad intents at all. So I told you earlier on sort of the credit and debit side of, of carbon, how they're both duplicative, that if you only account for a fraction of your total baseline and then invest in low carbon offsets that are only a tenth as effective as, as you think they are, then you only reduce 1% of your total emissions. Uh, and there is a, and has traditionally been a severe lack of, no, severe lack of knowledge uh, within corporates and enterprises on how to do this properly. Uh, so there has been a lot of cases where they don't know how to actually account for their carbon emissions. They might hire like a consultant that also don't know how to do it. Those consultants might use Excel spreadsheets despite the enterprise having like, you know, tens of millions of, of, of invoices uh, that might cause emissions indirectly. Um, and, and then the consultants might suggest that, okay, what if you buy these carbon offsets? And the consultants themselves might or might not be aware that some of these carbon offsets don't work because they don't have the boots on the ground to, to actually uh, see what is happening. Uh, so you have sort of this level of trust that are being exploited to, to some extent where companies think they're doing the right things uh, but as a matter of fact they're, they're not. As a matter of fact they're only accounting for a fraction of, of their baseline on, on the debit side and then they're only investing in low quality carbon offsets that don't work on the credit side but they thought that they were carbon neutral um, so that's what we have seen a lot where good intents combined with bad mathematics is, is leading to a, a bad outcome. And that's what we call unintentional greenwashing. Uh, and to contrast that with a greenwashing where there is a bad intent, uh, you might, uh, in order to get more customers, create your own echo label that looks uh, you know, um, legit, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that way you create like greenwashing with like uh, sort of bad intent um, or, or somewhere in between. It might be like, oh, this is actually doing a little bit of good, uh, but then it's sort of undermining the more sort of serious, uh, you know, like yeah, eco labels or more, more serious certifications. Um, so yeah, that's the story around uh, like unintentional and, and intentional uh, greenwashing. Um, and I think it's an, a story that is important to, uh, to tell mm -hmm. uh, 
because a lot of, and I, th- I just apply that as a general principle in, in my life as well. Like, don't assign like malicious intent where uh, the explanation could be incompetence. <laughs> <laughs> and I think in most cases, like yeah. in the world, like yeah. people that might even in your everyday life that that might do something hurtful towards you like it's more likely that they were just being incompetent and and didn't sort of fully think about how their words had consequences or whatever it might be so i see this all the time and and you know companies are run by people uh so obviously there there are no exception to that rule yeah yeah i think it's hard for people to kind of discern the voluntary involuntary aspect of it, which is difficult. So again, which is why we need better systems driven by accurate data to really then correct for that and say, okay, people can then make, you know, choices and see who, who, who the real actors are and and who, who, who isn't. So one of the last pieces here, I feel like this comes up a lot with all of my conversations now. It's, it's, it's almost obnoxious at this point, but Everyone's talking about AI. There's obviously, you know, great things about it and some some potentially existentially risky things about it, as you mentioned in the very beginning. So I guess here, you know, I, I think that people jump. There's a lot of um, sensationalizing this kind of thing of like, oh, my God, you know, the, you know AI is going to doom us. And, and there's certainly that risk. I don't want to minimize that. But. I also think AI tools and machine learning tools can be really helpful as well. Um, how do you see AI tools assisting with a lot of these pragmatic changes to com- combating climate change, uh, helping out with carbon accounting, etc.? So AI is, like many other technologies, a dual-use technology, which means that it can use, be used for good, it can be used for bad. Similar to how um, quantum physics or atomic physics can be used to produce atomic bombs, or it can be used for you know, nuclear power. Um, and AI is the same. Um, and first of all, the good things. I think AI can... Uh, it's already helping um, folding proteins at a rate where, where it would take like, you know, all PhDs in the, in the world, like thousands of, of, of years uh, to, to do this. And, and they're doing it in, in just a couple of days, which is incredible, which have a, will have incredible implications on, on drug discovery. It's being used to figure out how to sort of stable uh, nuclear um, fusion reactors that might give us an unlimited amount of clean energy. Uh, We use artificial intelligence inside of normative to sort of categorize and extract data from invoice line items and figuring out the carbon emissions based on the ERP systems data that our clients upload into our platform. So there's a lot of good things happening. but AI can also be used for a lot of bad things. Um, so I mean, right now you can put out this information at scale, undermining what truth even is. Because and and this has been demonstrated. I mean, you can automatically create campaigns that will create a bunch of blog posts to support any type of narrative and and bots that that 
go into the comments fields and, and create sort of a false sense of consensus around something that is completely false. In the longer run, uh, or even today, and I think that I'm, I'm, I mentioned that earlier uh, with Entropic and the CEO of Entropic recently testifying in, in the US Senate, that it, as a matter of fact, AI can be used to create dangerous bioweapons. And we might see, uh, if we're not careful, in just a couple of years, AI being used to build pandemics that are have the same incubation period of hepatitis B, which is uh, like almost a year or 10 months, uh, have the lethalness of rabies, which is almost like 100%, and being airborne in the same way as, as the common flu. And if you sort of engineered with the help of AI such a virus and release it to the world, like the entire population will have it and not know that they have it until like everyone dies, like, you know, 10 years later. Um, so I don't want to sound alarmist or actually I do want to sound the alarm. I, I think it's important to regulate artificial intelligence. And I think I mentioned that in the beginning that you have profit maximization and profit maximization creating externalities. And AI is just another example of that, where, in fact, the CEOs of uh, Anthropic, DeepMind, uh, and uh, OpenAI have all signed the statement that artificial intelligence is an existential threat, just like global pandemics and nuclear war, and still they're racing ahead of building those systems. Mm -hmm. And I can't blame these individuals. Mm -hmm. They're being pressured to do so. Uh, by profit maximization. Otherwise, the shareholders won't be happy and the shareholders will elect a board that will, in the end of the day, fire them from their job. So, I mean, profit maximization and, and, and that is, is deeper uh, than the concerns of these individuals. So I think it's, it's just a perfect example of how um, deploying the wrong metrics in society leads to, to, to bad outcomes. And one of the reasons... Uh, that sort of made me start normative in the first place, because if we can change that core accounting where externalities are being included in the profit and loss statement, then you would have a completely different discussion. Then we wouldn't have to have this arms race of, of AI uh, that are creating, as a matter of fact, in, in the long run, uh, global catastrophic and existential risks that are quite concerning. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be worried about. I mean, for sure, for sure, there's definitely a lot to be worried about. But I think, um, you know, I, I really am a, a big believer in what, what you're doing at Normative. I think it's super, super helpful and, and super essential. So um, where is the best place for listeners to, to find yourself, to find Normative, to find the work you're doing? Any, any places you want to point people to? So, um, I mean, you can find us online at normative.io. Um, if you want to work for us, we have several career opportunities. If you're interested in investing in us and, and share our mission, uh, please contact us. Uh, if you uh, want to help in any other way in our mission to make known and, and reduce the sustainability impact of all economic activities on the planet, please uh, let us know. Yeah, no, that's, that's important. And I think it's, us, it's nice to, to put people to a place where they can do uh, pragmatic uh, work. And, and, and really, a lot of people 
really care about the planet and the, about our home and about species and all these things. And a lot of the times, it, you know, they want a place where they can practically do something. And so uh, it's not maybe always the sexiest. It's not going to get all the fanfare, but it is it is deeply, deeply, deeply important. And so I think it's great. Uh, Christian, thanks so much for for your time. Uh, this was this was so much fun. Uh, it's everything I wanted it to be, you know, in the details, but really great way of communicating how, how serious these things are and, and the work you're doing. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm rooting for you. And um, it was, again, a really, really big pleasure to, to have you come on and, and talk uh, for a couple hours. Thanks a lot for having me. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. <laughs>